following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're going to talk about the reality of Jesus and the reality of his resurrection today. I'll just note a couple things. If you picked up a copy of my notes, and I tried to make some extras this morning, but maybe we'll make some more. I don't think I see any over on that table. I have a list of recommended resources at the end of my notes. Books, movies, Uh, I added a podcast this morning, but unfortunately it's not on your list. You can ask me about it afterwards. There's also a couple pages worth of notes and some handouts from a guy named J. Warner Wallace just about the reality of the resurrection. So there's a lot of information on your notes this morning that go beyond simply what I'm going to say. And I would encourage you, just as part of your formation as a disciple of Jesus, understanding the reality of the resurrection is a key thing. So um, those notes are full of information that's not original with me. So uh, I'm not asking you to spend more time reading Anthony's thoughts. Uh, These are the thoughts of others. All right. If you attend here, you know that we talk about a couple things about the reality of life in Christ quite a bit. Number one, the only way we get our sins forgiven The only way we find hope in this life and in the next is through Jesus Christ, his generous offer of grace and forgiveness. We call this salvation. When we talk about entering into this, this is the time when we surrender our lives to Christ, where we turn over the reins of our life to Jesus and we say, okay, thy will be done in my life, not mine. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, whose death was for my sins and whose resurrection has sealed that. You've shown you have the power to do it. I give my life to you as an act of worship. We talk about the fact that Jesus can heal our wounds. This can be the self-inflicted wounds of our own sins. It could be what we experience for others. There's damage done to us by other people in our life. Jesus has the power to fix this as well. We talk about the reality of the Holy Spirit working inside of us, that God has given his spirit to us to indwell us as temples in some ways of God, and that as the Holy Spirit works and lives and moves in us, we are continually transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. We call this sanctification. We talk about how our lives take on meaning and purpose. Because now as followers of Christ, we are children of God. We're part of the family. And no matter what we're doing in our life, no matter what the situation is, no matter how we might feel about our value and our worth and our dignity, we are children of God. And there's eternal weight to this reality. And then we talk about the fact that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Everybody worships. Everybody chooses something that they're going to prioritize in their life. Jesus is the only one who deserves this. But this only happens if Jesus is who he claimed to be. Paul makes this clear. If we are giving our lives to follow Jesus and Jesus is not who he claims to be, Paul said, then of all people, we're the most miserable. And he's writing this to a group of people who at that point, making a decision for Jesus was putting their life on the line. They they may well die because of this commitment. And Paul says, listen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, how foolish are you to give your life for something like this? I mean, if Christianity is nothing more than self-help, you can feel better with a bottle. You can feel better with a self-help book. You can watch Oprah and get some great ideas. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he's not who he said he was, then what we're committing our life to is a lie. 
That would be foolishness. But if he is who he said he was, then it matters more than anything else. Now all of history pivots on this. Now the only thing that really matters in life is following this Jesus and getting to know this Jesus and understanding life in him. So that's what I want to address today. It's just the reality of Jesus as we come up on Easter next week. So the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation that we build our faith on. I mean, the Bible reveals this to us, but our faith isn't built on the Bible. Our faith is built on Jesus. The Bible reveals Jesus to us. And if you've grown up in the church, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, we might start to uh, lose track of the, the really crazy nature that the claims, the Bible, the claims of the Bible. Uh, what it says about God, about reality, about Jesus. So very quickly, three key ones. The first claim is that God made a good world, and then we break it. It starts with the first people. It continues in us today. And over and over, we do these sinful things that destroy what the Bible calls shalom, which is just a Hebrew word for peace. And this peace means we destroy our peace with God. We destroy our peace with others. We destroy our peace with God's good world. And we destroy peace within ourselves. This is what sin does. It's corrosive. It kills all these good things. That's the first part of the story. But the second part of the story, then, is an amazing act of love and grace. God sends himself in the person of Jesus. We call this the incarnation. Carne, meat. God became meat and lived among us. And as a result of this, all this brokenness that we bring into the world is made right because of Jesus. Jesus takes upon himself the penalty for our sins, the eternal penalty for our sins. Doesn't mean we don't reap what we sow in this life in terms of the ripple effect of our choices. But Jesus takes that eternal condemnation away. He bore the weight of God's wrath on the cross, the wrath that we deserve. And all these things we break, Jesus now steps in and begins to mend. And when we give our lives to Jesus, he who begins a good work in us will continue this work in us. And then the third part of the story is that this crazy thing that Jesus raised himself to life. After he dies to pay this penalty, he brings himself back. It demonstrates that he has the power to do what he claims. And it demonstrates that in the most obvious way, as he can bring life from death in our lives, he offers life in place of death. A part of this is eternal life, but the other part of this is even just in our daily lives, these parts in our bodies that have been broken by sin, that are dead inside of us, Jesus begins to bring life back into this and and to renew those things in us that were sick and that were dead. And that's a fantastic claim. That's in some ways just a crazy claim that God would do this. At least it was to the people who lived at that time. And I give just a little bit of a background because it can be easy to think for some people that, hey, 2,000 years ago, maybe people were kind of gullible and silly and it was easy to believe these supernatural stories of reality. It wasn't actually the case. So the Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah ever since the time of David. And for the few hundred years before Jesus showed up, they had been in exile, they had been in subjugation, they were convinced the Holy Spirit had left them, they were just kind of floundering, they didn't understand why, in their opinion, God had deserted them. So by the first century, 
They are really waiting for this Messiah, this Savior to come and to free them. And as they looked at the Old Testament, they realized there's two things that they're really counting on for a Messiah. One is liberation or freedom from their oppressors. At this point in history, it was Rome. They expected this Messiah king to ride in with a sword and just decimate Rome and finally they would be free from this kind of occupation. Then they also expected that this Messiah or this Savior would purify the temple, rebuild a temple that was torn down, purify what was there. And by the time Jesus had rolled around, there were plenty of people in Jewish history that claimed to be this Messiah. And even after Jesus died, this continued for some time. I'm going to give you a couple examples very quickly. A dude named Judas, Maccabeus, if you read the books of Maccabees, that's the history of this guy. About 160 B.C., uh, he brought an army into Jerusalem. He purified the temple. He destroyed the altars to the other gods. This dude was amazing. And then he dies. He gets killed in a battle. Judas of Galilee. Judas was a very popular name at this time. He was the founder of the Zealots. He led a revolt against Rome around AD 6. So Jesus was maybe around 10 years old or so. He was just crushed brutally. He was killed. Everything he tried to do wiped out. A guy named Theodos, who is mentioned in the book of Acts, he claimed to be the Messiah. He led a group of 400 people toward the Jordan River. He said he's going to part the river and show them he's the new Moses. Uh, he got stopped and killed. The anonymous Egyptian, who was also a Jewish man, he had 30,000 unarmed Jews. This was a number of years after Jesus died. They went up to the Mount of Olives. They said, hey, we're going to pray the walls of Jerusalem down. And they were all massacred. Around 135, a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba, he actually founded a Jewish state that he ruled for three years. And then when he was defeated, 580,000 Jewish people were killed during that war. So this is a time where the Jewish people are used to people rising up and saying, I'm this Messiah you've been waiting for. I will free you from Roman oppression. I will purify the temple. All will be well in the world. But now here's Jesus. Jesus is in this mix. In that historical setting, he's going, no, no. Um, it's me. And even though he was very careful how he referred to himself, it's clear throughout the biblical narrative that is how he perceived himself and that is who he was. I am actually the Messiah. And there's this interesting story when John the Baptist is thrown into jail and he's waiting to be beheaded. And he has his people send a message to Jesus and his message is a question. Are you the one who is to come that is the Messiah or should we expect someone else? Here's John the Baptist who earlier had said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John the Baptist is languishing in prison. He sees his death coming and he doesn't say to Jesus, he doesn't send a message that says, I am so glad you're here. He sends a message, he goes, okay, I just need to know. Are you really that guy? Or... Was I looking at the wrong person? Should I be waiting for someone else? Because Jesus had not led an army to revolt against Rome. Right? He's, he's got questions. And Jesus sends this interesting reply. At Jesus' reply, he quotes Isaiah 29, but he doesn't quote all of Isaiah 29. Jesus replies, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the 
poor, and blessed are those who do not take offense in me. Now that could mean a lot of things, but I suspect part of that last line is this. I have not picked up a sword. I am not the Messiah you were expecting. And yet, I am. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was met by a crowd of people who put palm branches, waved palm branches, put stuff down. These were the zealots, most likely, because the palm branch was one of their symbols. You can read my notes and read more about this. They thought they were welcoming this conquering king who would slaughter the Romans, and that is not what Jesus does. In fact, when Jesus says his reply to John the Baptist, he leaves out the part in Isaiah, the next part, If you keep reading what Jesus quoted, and Jesus knew Isaiah well, he leaves out the judgment part. He he just says, I've come to bring blessing. I'm going to bring blessing to people. And he basically tells John, uh, don't let who I am compared to who you expected me to be trip you up. And then he gets crucified. So this is a problem. Because real messiahs don't die. If you die, you're just another in a long line of pretenders. And now you're back to square one. We thought you were the guy, but you're not. He clearly didn't free them from Roman rule. Even though he had that one episode in the temple where he drove out people who were profiting off of the church or the temple, he didn't cleanse the temple in the way that they were expecting. None of these things happening, and he dies, and his followers hide. It's pretty clear as you read the scripture narrative, they thought this was over. They're just stunningly depressed. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. Uh, and then, three days later, he rises. And he shows up, and he astonishes people who thought he was just another failed messiah. This, of course, is where the debate enters historically when people begin to offer challenges. They'll be like, there's no way Jesus actually rose from the dead again. This just doesn't happen. But there's a number of things that happen as a result of this. And once again, you can come to our class afterwards and just hear other ways to think about this. But this movement begins. This kind of movement that had never followed the death of another claimed Messiah. And it's the kind of movement that builds and that you would expect if this dead Messiah actually didn't stay dead but came back to life. So first of all, the early Christians claimed they had seen a resurrected Messiah at a time when actually no one believed that this kind of thing would happen. The Greeks didn't believe this. They thought the soul was trapped in our fleshly body, and when you died, finally your soul was free. Why on earth would you come back into a fleshly body? They didn't expect that kind of resurrection. The Jews, they thought there would be a coming resurrection, but they didn't think of it as an individual sense. They thought of it more that the entire world would be renewed. At that point, in that moment, Jesus resurrects into a group of people, a mixed group of people, none of whom expected this to be the case. They weren't stupid people. They knew that death was the end. And yet, this time, it wasn't. Uh, The Christians didn't appoint a successor to Jesus, which was a normal thing you do when your Messiah died. These previous Messiahs, Rome would kill them. Messiahs. Rome would kill them. But people who still kind of believed in it, they would appoint someone else to take their place, and now they'd start to follow this guy. They don't, they don't appoint a successor to Jesus. They live as if Jesus was still there and still alive. 
The early Christians actually claimed they had more to hope for now than ever before, which seems odd because the Romans were still in charge and, in fact, killing them. The temple still had its problems, and yet the early Christians said, finally, what was promised has come true. They claimed Jesus set them free from a much greater problem than Roman rule, and that was the law of sin and death that was reigning in their life. They actually claimed that the community of the church was now the temple in which God's spirit would dwell. This is huge for Jewish converts coming out of Judaism where the temple was the place. These new followers of Jesus said, oh, no, we're the temple. This is the place where God's Holy Spirit lives. And we're actually the thing that's being restored. So so you see this real contrast from what they expected to what they had. Liberation wasn't actually from the Romans. It was from sin and from hell and from death. And this purification, it wasn't about a building. It was about me and my heart. My soul, my mind, Jesus is working in me. They changed their view of God into a Trinitarian one. Uh, the Jewish people, throughout all of, their, all of their history, one of their key prayers was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh. And now you have the rise of a Trinity, a three-in-one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. For someone coming out of Judaism to make this claim, this upends everything you have been raised on. But now you have this stark reality in front of you. This dude was dead and he came back to life and that's what a God does. So clearly there's more to this than we realized. And then they worshipped Jesus at a time when to the Jews, worshipping a human was blasphemous. Uh, And to the Romans, to worship anybody but Caesar was a huge problem and would put you up for death. Actually, in both communities, because blasphemy carried with it the penalty of death in the Jewish community. So you have this whole new movement of both Jews and Gentiles who are beginning to follow Jesus against all odds and against everything that they stood for. Why would they do this? Because Jesus had resurrected. He had shown he was the Christ. God in the flesh who died for our sins and in his resurrection shows he has the power and the mastery over death. Michael Green says, It turned heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi into the courageous martyrs and witnesses of the early church. This was the one belief that separated the followers of Jesus from the Jews and turned them into the community of the resurrection. You could imprison them, flog them, kill them, but you could not make them deny their conviction that on the third day he rose again. And then Paul undergoes this miraculous conversion. He meets a risen Jesus in ways the Bible doesn't make clear what exactly it was, but it changed this killer of Christians into a follower of Jesus. And he writes to the church in Ephesus, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ 
and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul very clearly connects our resurrections of all kinds with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, so we're all in need of a Savior. And we all live in a time that is not so different from the time into which Jesus appeared in the sense that we constantly have this parade of false messiahs that present themselves to us making this claim that they can in some way save us. There's an author named Neil Gaiman who wrote a book called American Gods. The whole premise of his book is that the gods from history have never died. They've just shown up in our culture in ways uh, that look real shiny and glittery and nice to us, but nothing has changed. The gods of gluttony still exist. The gods of lust still exist. It, it's a mythological story. But I, I like the concept of what he's trying to do. Help us remember that this parade of false gods never goes away. They just change form in some fashion. For us, it could be a new tax system, a higher minimum wage, better health care, bigger paychecks, the keto diet, doctors, lovers, good jobs, good looks, influence, power, money, things. It's everything around us that we're waiting in some sense to be liberated or freed from something in our life that feels like bondage. We're lonely. We're in despair. We're depressed. We're anxious. Our life feels meaningless. We have all these things that we know need saving in us. And all around us will be this parade, this presentation of things that say, I can do this for you. I can save you. Give me your money. Give me your time. Give me your thoughts and your focus. I will be the one who can take care of these things in your life. But they're all substitute saviors. They'll claim to free us from these things, and they'll probably bring us temporary happiness. It's pleasure in sin for a season. That They'll probably help us mask over those real feelings that we have inside, the real things we're struggling with. You can mask with a lot of things. Sex will distract you. Alcohol and drugs will distract you. Shopping will distract you. Hanging out with friends can distract you. A big paycheck can distract you. All of these kinds of things can distract you from the real problem inside. You're putting a band-aid over this gaping flesh wound, and you think just because you can't see it temporarily, it must be okay, but it's not okay. It's not solving those issues. And of the things I just mentioned, they're not all necessarily bad things when used inside God's design for us. But we can start to see them as this thing which will save us. But they'll never cleanse this temple from sin. They'll never free us from the bondage of sin. They won't give our lives meaning. They won't won't make us right with God. And what will happen is, if we get caught in this cycle, if we try one of those and it doesn't work, we'll make an assumption, I either tried the wrong one or I just didn't try hard enough. It makes me think of... It's either Elijah or Elisha and the prophets of Baal. I'm 50 years old and I still don't know which one it was. Which one was it? Elijah or Elisha? See, I'm not alone. Yes. 
That makes me feel so much better. Thank you. It's a wrap. Where, where he's watching the prophets of Baal trying to get Baal's attention and they can't do it. And he's like, why don't you try harder? Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Try harder. Try harder. And of course, there is no response because there was never going to be a response of the kind that they were looking for. And we look back and they go, silly people worshiping Baal. But we buy these new phones thinking faster access and better pictures will make me happier, will solve this problem. And we find more beautiful people to surround ourselves with. And we buy bigger things. And we go through the and, and it's the same cycle. My God must not hear me. The problem can't be that I'm trying to find an answer in the wrong thing. The problem's got to be I'm just not trying hard enough. And this is what we call the rat race. And it will destroy us. Because those things will never give us what we're looking for. So if we look to our spouse to save us, if we look to our friends or our jobs or money or health or sex or relationships to save us, we will eventually become angry and cynical and delusioned and I think, or disillusioned and I think eventually hopeless. Because we know how it works. We try and try and try. And even when we get this temporary fix, we know we're going to come down. We know what's going to fail. We know what's exciting to us in this moment is going to fade and then I'm going to feel lonely again. And we know this thing that distracted us in this moment will eventually become boring and I'm going to find a new thing to distract myself with. We know this when we're in this cycle. I think the movie Titanic, which is one of my least favorite movies ever, don't hate me. It's because it made the compelling nature of this lie powerful. There's a line in the movie where Rose says of Jack, he saved me in every way I could be saved. No, he didn't. He slept with you and distracted you. And you thought that was salvation. The prophet Jeremiah notes that the people had forsaken God, the spring of living water, and dug broken cisterns that hold no water. That's the problem with these little s saviors. They are cisterns or wells in some sense. They do hold water. And they are temporarily refreshing. But they always run out. And eventually they always fail to refresh. And then we're still stuck with who we were stuck with before, namely ourselves. Temporary saviors save us in temporary ways. Little saviors save us a little ways. That's the way it works. So Jesus offers to us what he offered the woman at the well in Samaria. And that is this spiritual water of refreshing. This well that never runs dry. This water that we can drink from Jesus that genuinely solves the problem of our thirst that genuinely addresses these issues. Jesus is not some little savior. Jesus is the savior. And when he offers salvation to us, he offers to save us in meaningful, eternal, magnificent ways. Now, he's begun this good work in us. He continues it. It finds its perfect fruition in the life to come. Which means in this life, we will have trials. 
There's no doubt about it. We're still going to experience some ups and downs. But what Jesus does in our life is he fills us with this living water over and over and over again. It's an inexhaustible supply that continues to do its work. And eventually, and I see this happening in this church, people who give their lives to Christ or who are following Christ, there's these times in their life that just just about destroyed them, that they were ashamed of, that had beat them down and they didn't know what to do with it. And Jesus comes into their life and his spirit begins to work and his word feeds us and his people surround us. And next thing you know, not only are we healed, but now this becomes part of this testimony where we're now going to other people who were in the place that we were in and we're saying, hey, I've got good news. Jesus saves. Jesus delivers. Jesus heals. Jesus meets these things in your life that you didn't think could be met. I know because he's done that kind of work in me. Tim Keller likes to use the phrase that in Christ we're offered the hope that one day everything sad will come untrue. We will certainly experience part of that on this side of heaven. One day we will experience it in its fullness. So the crucifixion shows us how much God is willing to sacrifice for us because he loves us. The resurrection shows that he has the power to do what he claimed. So it's one thing for Jesus to say, hey, I can forgive your sins, but if If we have no reason to believe that, we might be skeptical. One of the stories recorded in the gospel is of Jesus healing a lame man. What was happening was uh, he was having a discussion with people. They, They didn't believe he had the power to forgive sins. And so he goes, you know what? So that you know I have the power to forgive sins, lame man walk. Lame man walks. Everybody's like, okay, that's pretty impressive. Apparently, he does have a lot of power. In other words, Jesus did something they could see so that they would have confidence in the claims he made for the things they couldn't see. So here we get the resurrection, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the entirety of the incarnation where God says, look, I will give you something to see so that you know when I make claims to do miraculous things, I'm a God who does miraculous things. You might not always be able to see them with your eyes, but I gave you this. And the Bible clearly records other things that Jesus did as well, so that you know, even in the areas of your life that you can't see with your eyes, you know this is the kind of God who has the power to do this kind of thing. The classic verse in John 3, God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal or everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. And that's the heart of Christianity. That's what we celebrate next Sunday on Easter Sunday. So like I said, I've got a lot of follow-up things you can do in my, in my notes here. And if you want to talk more about this proof of the resurrection. If you're in a place in your life where you just need that kind of shot in the arm to know this resurrection, or like I said, you want to be able to talk with others about this, um, come to room seven. We'll talk more about it. What I just want to challenge you with this morning is this. If you have not given your life to this risen Savior, you need to do it. 
You need to do it. It is the only hope. It is the only hope. And you can do this in this room. You can come up for prayer afterwards. You can turn to the person next to you. But I hope you understand, if you're not following Jesus, and you know that you should, everyone in this room at one point was not following Jesus, and now they are if they're a follower of Jesus. So you're not in an unusual spot. It's not like we don't get it. We all went through this process. You're in a safe room to surrender yourself to Jesus. But also, if you're a follower of Jesus and you recognize you are chasing false messiahs, you are chasing substitute saviors, even though you have made this commitment to give your life to Jesus, the reality is you're not pursuing Jesus in your life. You're pursuing these American gods, these false idols, these all these other things, and you've kind of lost your way. You're wandering. And, and you know it, you feel the emptiness, you feel the longing, and you just need to take some time to with somebody else. Don't, don't just do this in the privacy of your own head. With someone else in front of you, the face of a follower of Jesus, make your confession. Get them to pray with you. Put yourself into accountability. Let this community of Jesus be a part of this. So that's my encouragement this morning. When we dismiss, there's people up front to pray with you. You're welcome to come up front and pray with them. Like I said, there's nothing magical about praying with any of us up front. We're just people. You can find someone else here in this room that you want to pray with and just say, I need I need you to pray with me about this issue. And, and then once we dismiss, once again, we take our little break. We have a class for adults. There's a class for youth. Um, as we move into next Sunday, Easter Sunday, let this be a week where you, you are really focusing on the person and work of Jesus. I have recommendations in here of ways you could do that. Um, maybe it's watching the Jesus movie. Just something that lets you soak up the majesty and the grandness of the greatest story ever told. Lord, I am grateful that you're a God who saves I'm I'm grateful that you're the kind of God where you come and dwell among us and you take upon yourself the penalty that we deserve to offer to us freedom and forgiveness and salvation. And that you're the kind of God with the power to resurrect and to show us that the claims you make about the ability to work in our life are true claims. You bring the dead to life. You bring beauty from ashes. You take the broken and you mend them and make them whole. You take people whose hearts are full of darkness and turn them into the kind of people who are the light shining in this city on a hill as your glory shines through the cracks of our lives. Lord, may we all embrace this. Not simply for our good, but for your glory. Pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.